What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the show. Today, we are going to be talking about sleep. And this is honestly a podcast episode that I have been wanting to make for a while, but haven't. And just uh, have found myself making kind of excuses as to why I, I'm not ready to make this episode yet. Because because part of this uh, episode is going to be me sharing my experience, tracking my own sleep and and looking at a bunch of data and, and sleep tracking analytics stuff with the Aura Ring uh, for this past like year and a half almost now. And I think part of the reason why I've been hesitant to like jump on and do this podcast is because I'm still kind of half-heartedly tracking my sleep and, and measuring that. But I don't know when I think about it, when I kind of created the notes for this podcast there, there's just a ton of information and a ton of stuff that I want to go over that I want to include that I want to, to touch on. And I don't know, just for me, it was just, uh, it was just easier to justify not doing it than to getting up and, and, and trying to like articulate my thoughts and, and sit on here and talk to, you know, my experience tracking my sleep and talking about sleep in general. And part of it too is like, I'm not, I'm not an expert on sleep by any means. And it, it is something that everybody does. Everybody knows is important, but I, uh, I think it's, I think it's undervalued and underappreciated. And, um, if I can bring some light to it and, and just talk about my experience and, and some of the thoughts and things that have been going on in my head for over a year now, and, and if that helps somebody, I'm, I'm here for it. So bear with me today. I'm, I feel like my brain is going to be kind of all over the place. Uh, I'm going to try and I'm going to try and be as organized as possible here, but if you've been listening to me for a while, you you know me. So, all right, anyway, but uh, today, again, we're going to be talking about sleep, and yeah, my uh, my experience with the Aura Ring, which I'll go in and, and on in a second, but I've been tracking my sleep with something called a, an Aura Ring. It's a sleep tracking device. It's an actual physical ring, and I think I got it like... Um, January of 2021 or something or 2022. So I've been tracking it for a while now. Um, and again, on this episode, we're going to talk about what the aura ring is, why sleep is important, what I was looking for and, and what I was measuring. And I'll with that talk about, you know, what I learned from that. And then we'll kind of wrap things up and, and make some key takeaways close to the end. Um, but first and foremost, like why is sleep important? And Honestly, we can talk about this all day and, and have a different, you know, conversation and, and go down a bunch of different rabbit holes when it comes to sleep. But uh, we'll th- run through some spark notes here. But sleep is important because it's literally important for everything, right? If we're talking about, you know, optimizing your physical function, your recovery, your cognitive function, your athletic performance, your mood, your energy levels, your hormones, honestly, everything that you can think of like as it relates to your health and well-being is related to sleep and impacted by sleep. And poor sleep is associated with pretty much any negative health outcome that you can think of, right? Like things like your uh, increased risk for heart disease and stroke and diabetes and inflammation and depression and worsened uh, immune system, like literally everything, right? And in the context of fat loss and body composition as well, right? Like getting proper sleep, keep something called your ghrelin levels in check, which ghrelin being your hunger hormones. So if you have poor sleep, it'll essentially just increase your baseline levels of ghrelin, which will lead to more hunger over time. Are you feeling more hungry throughout the course of the day? 
and man, you know, if you're trying to lose weight or if you're in a fat loss phase, or even if you're, you know, trying to maintain your weight, like you don't want to do things that are going to make you hungrier than you already are, right? Like you intentionally trying to lose weight is already going to result in you, you know, developing more diet fatigue and hunger, uh, just feeling generally hunger across the board, like as you're in that deficit. So getting proper sleep and prioritizing that is going to be one of the most important things that we could do to help fight against hunger, especially something that if we look at what's in our control, 100% something that we could do to, to influence how we feel day to day. Now, sleep is also uh, primarily when your body repairs broken down muscle, muscle tissue. And that, um, you know, that usually comes as a result from exercising or lifting resistance training, even you doing, you know, um, hit workout classes, different things like you exercising, you know, your sleep is the time where you recover from that. And it's well known that, you know, during deep sleep, you see an elevation in these uh, hormone called growth hormone, which is an important recovery adaptation that you get from exercise. So getting quality sleep is really complimentary to you recovering from your exercise, but also adapting and improving from it as well. So at the end of the day, really sleep is the cheapest, most accessible, and it's really the most po- like potent performance enhancing drug or ergogenic aid that's out there. And, and I think it's just the best fat burner as well. If if we're like throwing sleep into this category of things that it's helping with, like it's probably one of the things that's going to help you maintain or lose weight and, and just feel your best over time. So I just wanted to get that out there. Just a little quick breakdown on sleep. I probably missed a million things. You know, if you're a sleep professional listening to this podcast, you know, bear with me now, but in general, those are, those are some really important things that I think of when I'm working with clients and and how sleep pertains to them reaching their body comp goals or their performance goals or their overall health goals and improving their health markers. Sleep is really important for all of those things. So, um, now getting into the sleep tracking device that I use, like what is an aura ring? I feel like a lot of people know what it is by now. It's been pretty like popular and kind of glamorized by like the fitness community. They've done a fuck ton of marketing and like getting like, I don't know, Lindsey Vaughn and like Damian Lillard. Like, I don't know, all these professional athletes and people to like, you know, advertise the product for them. But it's basically a high quality sleep tracker. And alongside it, you might also be familiar with Whoop, which is a another sleep analytics device that is uh, wrist wearable. So you wear it on your wrist instead of a ring. Um, so it's very similar to like a Fitbit or an Apple watch. And again, the, the aura ring is it's in the name is an actual ring that you would slide on a finger. Part of the process of you getting an aura ring is they send you like a handful of different ring sizes that you wear around your certain fingers and then you order your size and whatever, but it's an actual ring that you wear. Um, and man, I don't, I don't want this podcast to turn into a debate on what the best sleep tracker is, right? Like, well, what's the best in the market? Um, but in my personal experience, I ended up going with Aura Ring because I thought that it would be more comfortable to sleep in personally. And I've never really, I've never really liked wearing anything on my wrists. I still don't even like wearing rings either. Um, Katie, if you're listening to this podcast, you know, I don't, I don't wear my wedding ring that often either. Right. Cause it's, I don't know. It's just uncomfortable. I don't like things on my hands. I don't like things on my fingers. I've, I never have. And it's sorry, excuse, but the Aura Ring to me was 
the less of two evils of like what I feel like I could get more comfortable with and not notice as much when I was trying to go to sleep. Um, and again, like that's a personal preference. Um, I don't like wearing literally any type of jewelry. Um, so that product to me appealed to me the most. And I know other people share a similar, um, similar opinion on that as well. Um, and again, you know, it's going to change for person to person, but I thought about this a lot because I think it's actually a really important decision. If you are somebody who's like thinking about going into tracking their sleep or picking something that's going to, you know, monitor a lot of this data and, and analytics, like choosing something that you're going to wear that isn't irritating you at night is a fucking big deal because you don't want that thing fucking with your mind and, and, and messing up your sleep um, as your head hits the pillow at night, right? Like we don't want the thing that you're using to track your data messing with your sleep so that that shows up on the data, you know what I mean? So just be a really uh, counterproductive way to to kind of approach the whole uh, sleep, um, you know, sleep monitoring thing. So cool. But now my, again, here I go, my brain's all over the place, but if we compare the actual products and like the different technology from each of the sleep trackers out there, I think everything is improved and, and is so competitive with each other that I think they're all going to be comparable from one, one product to another. So whatever you do decide to do, if you do want to track your uh, sleep, I think there's a lot of really great products out there. And Oura Ring isn't like the gold standard by any means, at least that I know about. Now, from my understanding at the time, I had read, um, this is again about a year and a half ago, two years ago, I had read that Oura Ring at that time had a slight advantage over other sleep trackers and I don't know. Again, let's be honest. Like I, I couldn't tell you who the top dog is right now, but I know that they've all improved and there's been software updates and things that have made the product better over time. So I think, I think whatever you do, you're getting a good quality product, whatever you decide to buy. And again, not, not getting too carried away here. Um, I think, you know, I think any of them are going to give you accurate and reliable feedback and just something to, to keep in mind. I don't, I don't think there's a big difference between a bunch of them. And we'll also talk about this today, but I just, I don't want people to get too deep into the weeds when looking at all this data and all this technology and all this stuff that's out there, because it's just more important to recognize the trends and associations that, you know, you can get from these trackers. So you can use that to make adjustments into your day-to-day life. You know, if I had to think of any cons, just think off the top of my head of the Aura Ring and some of these trackers, but more, more importantly, the Aura Ring. I'd say it's really not that great to like lift weights in or work out or if you're grabbing things, um, you know, unless you're doing like cardio or even like riding a bike or going on walks and tracking your steps, I think it could be really great for that. But I remember trying to like wear it when I was lifting one time and I don't know, just it scratched immediately. I'm like, fuck that. I'm not, I'm not wearing this when I lift. It's just, uh, I don't know. It just wasn't worth it to me. So I think a wrist wearable might have an advantage if you are using it to track your workouts and and things along that nature. But yeah, that was the only con that I can think about when it comes to the Oura Ring. Um, if, if somebody's deciding between the two. So yeah. And, and to mention that it is an activity tracker, so it tracks all of your, you know, activity and movement and whatever else during the day, which, which can be cool, but I didn't get the ring for those reasons. And when I did try and keep it on during the day, I just found that it wasn't very comfortable and it wasn't something that I wanted to wear often at all. So it, it just, it ended up just being something that I put on at night. I used it as a sleep tracker and that was the only thing that I used to, used it for and I was fine with that. 
Also, in general, I think since we're talking about this, I think using fitness trackers just to track calories burned and things like that aren't actually a really helpful thing to track. And it's more of a distraction in my opinion than anything. So I wouldn't recommend anyone, you know, let that data and stuff. If you are wearing your, your Fitbits and you know, all these fitness trackers during the day, I wouldn't let that data that you see from like an energy burn standpoint, hold a bunch of weight over you. Okay. I, I don't want to go on a tangent on this, but, um, yeah, I just, I just don't think that that's a good allocation of people's time and in mental energy when it comes to their health and fitness. So cool. I digress from that. Don't get me started. Um, cool. So why did I like have this idea to start tracking my sleep in the first place? Now I'll be honest. I, I've, I've been working with my own like health and fitness coach for a while now, and he went through a similar experience. He actually had the aura ring. We talked about this a lot, Jordan, if you're listening to this episode, I've appreciate you and and pushing me in this direction to just do this for myself because I um my hypotheses were very similar to yours when when you know we were talking about what we might find and look for um but it's uh it was just something that I wanted to do for myself and you know at this time you know a year and a half ago year ago I just think about where I was in my career and 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 with my business and everything going on, but I was just so deep into this like data driven mentality, uh, some with my coaching clients, but more so with myself, like putting myself through my own case studies and, you know, taking the, the Dutch test and the GI map and doing a bunch of blood work and looking at my micronutrient stores. And at the time I was uh, finishing up my master's degree in, in, um, taking a couple of classes there and doing some like of my own little research stuff. And then I was also knee deep into like, uh, the N1, uh, training kind of certification, personal training outlet thing. I was also getting ready to, to join this thing called leveraging labs that a dietitian teaches on how to interpret blood work and all of this stuff. It was just, I was just information overload. I was trying to read everything. I was listening to, you know, a bunch of podcasts kind of diving into the science with a bunch of things. And at this time, I just like couldn't get enough of things. I couldn't get enough of information, and and whether that information like stuck or not is a different uh, conversation because a lot of it didn't. I, I was just I ended up getting burnt out honestly with a lot of this stuff. Like once my master's program ended and I finished some of these certs, like I just didn't add anything else to my plate. And honestly, that was something I worked through with my therapist a lot on. But uh, again, that's a conversation for another day. But you know, thinking back even further than that, like sleep is always something that I've, I all admit it, I've underappreciated, especially in like high school and college. You know, I, I know a lot of people can relate, but high school, like I would be the first person to, to stay up till midnight, 1am watching the movies with friends on the weekends. Right. Or, or playing Xbox and video games, you know, on weeknights and playing with my friends uh, or even just watching TV before bed. Like, and, and school started fairly early, like 7 a.m. or something. I, I can't remember, but I didn't get a ton of sleep in high school. I didn't get a ton of sleep in college that I, I remember just living with roommates, um, you know, really taking my studies like seriously, but uh, j- just being at the library and being at class and working and uh, working in the morning. It was just like, I don't know. I just, I, there would be nights and weeks where I'd sleep five to six hours and that was my baseline for months at, uh, you know, months at a time. So for me, I just think back and it's like sleep has always been something that I haven't appreciated or haven't really prioritized. And uh, me just kind of 
and you can kind of go back to like my story of like kind of overtraining and underfueling and uh, body dysmorphia stuff. Like, uh, I don't know what episode that was, but this relates partially to this, but sleep was, sleep wasn't something that I was doing consistently. And it was often something I was sacrificing in pursuits of other things. And, um, it wasn't until like a year or two ago where I really started to take it a lot more seriously. I, I realized that sleep is probably one of the most important things. And it was kind of a missing puzzle piece that I really hadn't paid a whole lot of attention to and dived in, uh, dived in on. So this was kind of an opportunity for me to, to really take it more seriously and start to learn about it so I can appreciate it more. So all of that being said, you know, there's a lot of reasons why I wanted to track my sleep. Those were some of them, but I was really happy I started. And again, I think it was a really great experience. And as I sit here today, I'm slowly using it less and less because like other things, you know, I think there comes a time at some point where backing off from using these trackers and things are warranted, you know, likely because that's part of your best life going forward. Like obsessing over these things long-term are probably not, you know, probably not your best bet when it comes to tracking data and even tracking food, I would maybe add in that category. Like in my opinion, there probably comes a time where, you know, obsessing and looking at all these data and things like you learn what you're going to learn and, and then you move on from that. And that was kind of the mindset that I got to here in the last few months and why I started to slowly, uh, I don't know, just slowly back off on using it. Um, but we'll touch on that at the end here when I wrap up my final thoughts on the aura ring and all the sleep stuff. But yeah, just wanted to mention that. Um, now the next thing that I wanted to talk about is like, what were the variables and what were the metrics that I was tracking with the aura ring and, and the directions that I wanted to see those particular things go? Because there's definitely a lot of things that you can look at when you're using these things and these type of uh, sleep tracking devices. But I want to make sure we have a baseline understanding on what these things actually track and why they're important and what directions we want to see them go in, or at least what directions I wanted to see my stuff go in. And first up, the most important thing that I was super interested in at the time was HRV and tracking my HRV. And HRV has been kind of all the rage here the past few years. And it's something that a lot of people I think are becoming interested in when it comes to their own health and their own fitness. And I was definitely one of those people when I bought the, the aura ring last year, but HRV stands for heart rate variability. Now, what the fuck does that mean? Right? Like simply put HRV is the variation between your heartbeats. And the best way that I can describe it is just imagine your heart rate is like 60 beats per minute. If we want to keep it simple now, you might think that your heart beats like a metronome and, and beats exactly one beat per second if we track that over the, the course of a minute or, you know, 60 seconds straight. But that's not how your heart works. Like, you're not a robot. And for the most part, your heart isn't beating with, like, no variability between beats. It's unlikely that your heart is beating one beat per second every 60 seconds on the dot every day, Right. Um, but your HRV measures the balance between your parasympathetic nervous system, aka like your rest and digest state, and your sympathetic nervous system, which is your fight or flight state. And when your HRV is higher or when you have more variability between your heartbeats, so if we're taking that 60 beats per minute example again, instead of every you know single beat on the top of the second, maybe it's something like 
0.8 seconds and then 1.2 seconds, then 1.4 seconds and 0.6 seconds, right? Like there's a big variability between those beats and that would indicate a more rested state that you're in. Now, when HRV is lower, your body is in more of a heightened or flight or fight kind of state. So again, going back to that 60 beats per minute, having one beat every second would be very low variability. And it actually, if you think about it, it'd be zero, which isn't a thing, I don't think. Um, but this lower variability between beats would indicate you're you know, in a more anxious and fight or flight state that your body is in. So again, HRV is associated with uh, rest and digestion, right? Like a high HRV, sorry, a high HRV is associated with rest and digestion, good recovery, um, general good fitness, and it's more of an indication that you're in that parasympathetic state or or a more like relaxed place or at homeostasis. And a lower HRV is associated with that fight or flight kind of stress state, illness, um, overtraining, which again, like isn't the place that you want to be hanging out in all the time. So you can see how you can potentially use this marker and identify like what type of state you're in and, and using that as feedback. Like, are you in the height, you know, heightened states? Are you stressed out? Um, are you in this sympathetic state when you wake up or are you in more of a relaxed state? And one thing I learned about this is HRV is very specific to the individual and there can be a ton of variability from person to person. So what's low for somebody might be higher for somebody else, right? And people's baselines are going to, they're just going to vary a ton. And there's, there's no baseline number that's perfect for everybody, right? There's not this general rule of thumb that everybody is going to fit into. So everyone is going to have their own starting points with this. And we, we just have to remember that. So the best way to use HRV, in, in my opinion, is to use it as a tool. And you use it to gather a baseline that, you know, you can measure against over time. So you can basically have HRV markers that range from like zero to over a hundred. I don't know if there's like a max or a minimum, but again, higher being quote unquote better in this, in this context. And I think everyone's with me with this by now, but if you have a really low HRV, a really low variability, it means you're in this chronic fight or flight status. And you just don't want to be in that sympathetic state too often. Like you just, you don't want that to be your baseline state, your baseline operating state all the time. So if you have a really low HRV, it means you're in this really high stress and anxious state more often. And again, we don't want that. Like we want to have a higher HRV, which would indicate a more parasympathetic kind of dominant state or just a more relaxed state over time. Now, with all this being said, you know, you can't just take that one number and think that number it gives you, it's inherently good or bad, right? Like I'll give you an example because I've compared my data to other people and my coach and some friends who have aura, aura rings or just some other sleep trackers too. And I have a friend that sticks out in, in my mind here, but um, he wears an aura ring as well. And some of his higher numbers that he'll see are closer to like 50 and 60, where my higher numbers can range from like 70 or 80 or even higher in certain occasions. I've seen my number go up higher than, and then hundred, 110 at some, uh, certain points. But usually if I'm, if I'm feeling good and I'm more in that, uh, higher, you know, HRV, that 70 to 80 range is a number that I ended up starting to look for. Cause I found that that was my average over time when I was 
tapping into that parasympathetic state. So for me, again, seeing anything in the 80s is incredible, but someone else could be pushing high 60s or low 70s, and that could be really good for them too. And just because someone's number is lower doesn't necessarily mean that they're in this chronic, stressful, like fight or flight state all the time. There's just a lot of uh, genetic factors that go into it, and some people aren't going to get 100 HRV consistently, right? Like, nor are they going to double the number, you know, of what their highest number is over time. But what you can do, and and something I'd recommend to anyone listening to this podcast, and or if you decide to track your sleep data or whatever it is, but I'd get a baseline. I'd just track your HRV for a month or two and, you know, just get kind of what your normal baseline might be, get some ballpark numbers and just try to improve that baseline average by 10, 15 maybe 20% over time and when you're able to do so and when that makes sense because you're not going to be able to just magically get that number up and keep it up forever. There's a lot of things that can impact it, stuff that we're going to talk about at the tail end of this podcast today too. Um, you know, times that it might make sense for you to try and get your, or you, it would make sense for your HRV to continue to, to increase or get better or higher. Um, might be during like a deload week or um, a, a period of time where you're taking some time away from the gym, or maybe a vacation, or maybe you have like longer rest periods or rest days um, away from exercising for a period of time, or maybe you're in the off season of your sport or whatever performance goals you're trying to work towards, right? But in those times are where you know, you're not going to be pushing yourself as hard and that's going to be where you're, you're going to see a lot of these numbers be able to come up and, um, and be a little bit higher instead of being in that kind of overtrained, maybe, you know, fight or flight stressful state. Um, but man, as I, as I talk about this, I just, we got to remember that this isn't something that I want people to be obsessing over and always comparing yourself to like what your friend gets or what you read on the internet or saw somebody who posted their shit on social media. Like, I don't know, just worry about your number and work on increasing that number up a little bit over time. And and that is, that is the best headspace in my opinion that somebody could be in when they're tracking something like HRV. So cool. Yeah. So again, what you could do is really just make sure that you're checking all the boxes and you're putting yourself in the best position to change some of these metrics and, um, adjusting some of your habits and just make it more of your new baseline to see some of these higher numbers over time. Cool. I think the last thing that I wanted to just say about HRV real quick is that, um, using HRV to kind of dictate your training has kind of been all the rage as well. And, and, a little bit overhyped in my opinion, but over the past few years, you know, using this HRV number to dictate, you know, what you do and what you train and how hard you go that day has kind of been part of the discussion. And that was something that I played with personally since I started tracking my own sleep and monitoring that data in the morning when I woke up. Um, but it's this idea that if you have a higher HRV, right, you're in this nice rested and parasympathetic state you know, people are like, great. Like those are the days that you should try and go for a new PR in the gym or push yourself harder in the gym or, or train a little bit harder because your body is more primed and ready to handle that stress. Right. And if your HRV is low, so you're in this more kind of stressful state, those would be days where maybe you train with less intensity or it'd be a lighter day, or maybe you take the day off completely if it's super low. 
But this idea that you're going to be waking up every day and looking at your HRV score and then letting that dictate if you're going to train or not that day, to me, is just not practical for fucking anybody. Um, and it's it's honestly been shown in the literature that it it's really not a good proxy for how hard you should train that day. So it's, uh, I don't know, it's just not a good acute number to, to base your decision on for the day. And if you're listening to this and, and you wear a sleep tracking device, like just don't use each individual sleep score as kind of a deciding factor on what you should do for that particular day. Zoom out and just take larger chunks of time, like like weeks or maybe months, and just look at trends and use that to assess how things have been going for you. Okay, just don't put a ton of weight into one measurement um, and just let that decide what you know you do that day from a fitness standpoint or exercise standpoint. Cool. All right, let's move on. I hit the HRV stuff a little too hard there, but um, the second variable that I was looking at was heart rate. Now, this is pretty simple, but heart rate is related to your overall fitness. So the lower your resting heart rate is, the better. And you might see like super fit, like cardio endurance runners and people who do crazy, you know, have high uh, cardiovascular endurance who have resting heart rates in like the 40s, which is super great, right? It's sick. Um, but generally speaking, the lower your heart rate is, the better. And if you're seeing yours start to creep up over time, usually it's an indication that something's wrong. And as you get more fit and your heart gets healthier, you'll start to see that number trend downward over time. So that was something that I was tracking. I was also tracking sleep latency. And just to put it simply, this is, it's like the time it takes to fall asleep when your head hits the pillow. And this is actually something that a bunch of people can struggle with. You know, personally, it wasn't something that I have struggled with in the past, but this is definitely a challenge for a lot of people. But it's the uh, front end of your sleeping patterns, really, and it's the time between the moment you choose to, like, decide you're going to bed and closing your eyes and the time where you actually fall asleep. And I'm sure we've all felt this at some point where you, like, try and go to sleep, but you end up awake for 30 minutes because your body just, like, doesn't fall asleep and you end up just, like, you know, laying awake for 30, 45 minutes. Um, we've all felt that at some point, some more than others, but sleep latency is, is where a lot of people do struggle. And that was something that I was interested in seeing for myself as well. And along with, uh, along with that, I was also looking at my, my sleep cycles. I really wanted to track my, my, uh, different stages of my sleep cycles. Now, again, trying to keep this really short, but I wanted to track specifically how much REM and how much deep sleep I was getting each night. And for those who aren't familiar, REM sleep is really important for like um, um, uh, like memory consolidation, learning, your creativity. And this is usually when we have like our most vivid dreams where your deep sleep is the most kind of like restorative sleep stage where it's really important and it's where we see the most like muscle growth and muscle repair happen. So most people don't get enough deep sleep, to be honest, and a lot of people don't get enough REM sleep either, but we'll talk about some of those things and you know what might impact that later in the episode when I talk about my takeaways, but a lot of people don't get enough deep sleep, which is a, a really bad problem. Now, a lot of these things are important, but 
from what I've read and what I've learned, it seems that a lot of people get less deep sleep than they need to. And a lot of our lifestyle factors tend to inhibit us from getting the proper amount of deep sleep that we need each night. And especially for all my people working towards a fitness goal, like this is the thing that's actually enabling muscle growth and muscle repair because we see a really high elevation in growth hormone. And we all know that that's a good thing. Um, that's a really important part of that um, recovery process when we're, you know, recovering from our training sessions and trying to adapt to that. So those were the, those are really the three things that I was interested in when I was looking at the different sleep cycles. I also wanted to see how many times I was waking up in the middle of the night. Just seeing that graphed out to me was really interesting and something I was interested in because I wanted to see if I was actually sleeping consistently throughout the night because Prior to me tracking my sleep, I I honestly found myself just like tossing and turning some nights and not sleeping as well or getting up to go pee. And I was just really curious on how many times I actually got up through the night. So that was fascinating. And then uh, the last thing that I wanted to check was uh, just checking my notes here. I also wanted to, to monitor my body temperature. So in general, when you notice uh, increases in your body temperature, Um, above your baseline, your temperature is rising. That's not a good thing. Like you want your body temperature to be stable and and at at homeostasis. And if your body is getting hotter at night, it's usually a bad sign because you might be coming down with a sickness or uh, maybe you're overtraining or getting a cold. So it's really a good marker to keep an eye out if you're trending, you know, higher and you're trending towards something bad. Cool. So those were all the metrics that I was looking at when I was looking at my sleep analytics, but I just wanted to lay that out before I talk about anything else here, just so we're all on the same page. And, um, we're going to kind of talk about the, the takeaways and the things that jacked up my sleep and that can fuck up your sleep. But, uh, I think those were important to, to measure because I think all of the sleep trackers track those things, but that is likely something if you do decide to track your sleep for a period of time, those are the metrics that you will likely see on the app or whatever it is that you're using to to kind of look at the data that you're getting back. So cool. Just to, just to recap again, I was, I was tracking my HRV or I was just tracking how baseline, you know, uh, sympathetic or parasympathetic I was. And, and I wanted to make sure I was doing the things that I needed to do to improve that. I wanted to see my resting heart rate and I wanted to make sure it was in kind of a ballpark of what a fit and healthy persons would be. I also wanted to see if it would just trend up over time and if I was heading into a more overtrained state with my workouts as I was doing them. I was tracking sleep latency or how long it took me to fall asleep. I was tracking my sleep cycles and, and getting enough, you know, deep and REM sleep was important to me. So I wanted to see what that looked like, you know, graphed out over the night. And I wanted to see how many times I was waking up in the middle of the night and just kind of keep an eye on my body temperature as well. So Cool. Now we're going to talk about the things that I found that really affected my sleep in a meaningful way. And, you know, before I talk about those things, actually, I want to make it clear that, again, this is my own personal experience. Now, a lot of what happened to me, I think, lines up really well with what we see in the literature and things that, you know, people probably already know. Like, none, none of this stuff is super new. But it's still my experience and if you end up trying some of these things and it doesn't turn out the same way for you, like that's okay. That's your own personal experience. So just remember that. And again, there's plenty of science and research that backs up the experiences that I had and the things I'm going to be pointing out. Um, 
but I, I, I want to make sure we're not making huge generalizations for everything we talk about today. Um, but I will try and, and kind of make a point and, and point out things that do align with the research when I do talk about some of my key takeaways here. Um, also, again, these are likely things that you already know that aren't good for your sleep. But however, like for me, seeing it in the app and seeing my sleep score every morning had a really like profound effect on my denial on some of these things. Like watching it on a graph or getting a low sleep score like made these things so much more real to me. And, you know, for the Oura Ring in particular, you get a, a sleep score on a scale from like one to 100 every morning. So seeing some of this feedback, it really did make a difference for me. But none of these things were a mystery. Like if I had alcohol before bed or a big meal or caffeine and, and across the board, I saw my HRV go down and my body temp go up and my deep sleep come down. Like just seeing that combination of things like change over time was really enlightening for me. So you might already know that, you know, a lot of the uh, uh, literature says X, Y, and Z is bad for your sleep, but you're like, cool. Like it, it doesn't affect me that much, right? Like, and I find a lot of people who drink say this a lot too. It's because it's very clear that alcohol wrecks your sleep. But, you know, those same people will say like, oh yeah, it's cool. You know, I sleep fine after I drink, but man, like when you see it for the first time on a graph, it becomes a lot more real and a lot more obvious that it's actually impacting you, okay? Um, but for me, what was cool about tracking my sleep was I could no longer be in denial about some of these things, right? And, and that my poor sleep that I was experiencing on occasion was actually my fault and not because I was born a bad sleeper like a lot of people will label themselves as. Like, like, it was my habits that was fucking things up, not my genetics or anything else. So um, lastly, I, this is the last thing I'm going to say before we dive in, I promise. But yes, seeing all this data and information graphed out made me take my sleep habits and just my sleep hygiene very seriously. Um, 100%, you know, but something I learned since I've started using my Aura Ring was that you can't let the app in the ring or the wrist wearable, whatever it is, like you can't let those things tell you how to live your life and just totally dictate your actions day to day. Like being a psychopath about all the data and all these things just isn't a good idea. Like going back to the HRV and you have one low score randomly one day, like, and you're like, okay, I guess I can't train today. Like, it's just, I don't know. It's just not practical again. And I just don't want, I don't want these things to like, control you and consume you to the point where you're stressing out more about the data and in our reality it's more it's just more of a visual and something that is maybe reinforcing or maybe opening your eyes to certain things that you can make adjustments from but I just don't want you to I just don't think it's a good idea to 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 take this data as serious as possible and then let that ruin your life it's just not a just not a good place to be so yeah like you should recognize that alcohol wrecks your sleep, right? But that doesn't mean you can never drink again, right? Like, yes, caffeine fucks with your sleep, but that doesn't mean there's not a place for it. And it's important to find balance between the way you feel versus what the app is actually telling you. And if you wake up with a sleep score of like 65, which isn't very good, but if you feel fine and you feel good, and you know, I'm not saying that you feel good, but you're just bullshitting yourself here, but you actually feel fine, like, don't let that number or the data mess with you, okay? Like, take the data with a grain of salt. Like, 
I'll probably wrap this podcast up by saying that again, but just don't let the shit run your life because like anything, you can really take a lot of the stuff too far. And that's not, that's not the goal of this podcast or to, or to let people have these things take control of them. Cool. All right, I'm going to run through some of my big takeaways here. And my first one was meal timing. So when it comes to meal timing, in general, it does not matter for fat loss in particular or building muscle or maintaining your, your physique. Like as long as your calories in check, it doesn't matter meal timing. Like just because you eat before bed does not mean you're going to automatically gain more fat after that. Um, but what I found is if I had a big meal, especially like higher in fat, right before I went to bed or within 30, 45 minutes, an hour before I went to bed, my body temperature was usually up. My deep sleep was was down or it was a little bit lower and I didn't feel super awesome, right? Like if you think about it, your body is still working on digesting that food as you're trying to, to go to sleep. And this is also something that is in alignment with um, what we see in the literature of like eating big meals before bed is not best for you getting optimal sleep at night. Um, you know, this idea of like postprandial thermogenesis of your body temperature rising or your um, your body just taking energy and time and attention to your digestive system so you can break down, digest, absorb that food. Like it's still doing something as you're trying to go to sleep. So you're kind of like trying to do two things at once and sometimes eating a shit ton of food before bed is not the best idea. Now, if it happens on occasion, so be it, right? But if you're a person who is habitually eating big meals before bed and you're not sleeping super well, this might be one of the reasons why. So for me, I just found that meal timing actually made a difference in like allowing at least two, at least two, but I'd probably say three, four hours before you have your last meal for the day, even last food for the day before you go to bed is probably a good idea. And a lot of people are going to feel really good with that. And um, that will likely impact your sleep in a positive way if you have more time spaced between when you eat last and before you hit the hay and go try and go to bed. So meal timing I found was actually something that impacted my sleep for the worse when I was eating bigger meals right before I went to bed. So that was very, uh, very interesting. But I know, um, I know like some nurses are going to be listening to this or people who are like, well, that's just my reality. And that's the, that's the schedule that I have. And four days a week, I need to do this. And to be honest, like that's the reality that we live in, right? And this is where like this idea of like doing what's optimal all the time versus doing what's practical for you and what you need to do. We always have to stick with what's practical for you. So if a few nights a week, you got to eat a bigger meal and maybe you try and stay up a little bit longer to digest that food before you go to bed. Great. But again, just keep in mind that these are generalizations and and not specifics to everybody because some people can eat a big meal and feel fine maybe going to bed and not have that impact their sleep at all. So meal timing is one thing that I found was impacted uh, with my sleep. The second one was caffeine. Now we can do a whole episode on caffeine and I feel like I've talked about it before. I think I actually have. I have a couple podcast episodes, but um, I'll be the first to admit, like I, I actually don't drink caffeine like ever. Um, and maybe not ever, but I, I don't have coffee every morning. I don't take pre-workout. When I drink tea, it's decaffeinated or it's herbal tea. Caffeine is just not part of my daily regimen. And it's, uh, 
it's not me sitting here like, ha ha, look at me. I, I don't live, I can live without caffeine. It's not like that. It's, uh, to be honest, I think why I don't drink caffeine personally is, uh, I know myself, I have a very addictive personality. Uh, it's, it's probably the same reason I don't gamble or bet on sports or do anything like that. Um, that's kind of a bad, <laughs> I think that's a bad comparison, but this idea of like, when I do something, I do it hard and I can get addicted to things really quickly. And for me, I just, I, I haven't, I haven't taken the leap to like try to enjoy coffee. I think the barrier to me is I just don't like the taste of it. And I know I can make myself like the taste of it by adding creamer and sugar and getting the mocha or whatever the fuck is out there. Um, but none of that appeals to me. And um, I think I'm afraid of getting uh, dependent on caffeine is one of the reasons why I haven't started drinking caffeine even throughout school and college and everything. But yeah, I'm just, uh, I feel like I'm, I'm a minority when I say all this because I know caffeine is uh, one of the most consumed substances probably in the fucking world. But um, caffeine was a tough one for me because I intentionally had to go out of my way to try and drink caffeine to see how it affected my sleep, which a ton of confounding variables if you think about it, like my sensitivity to it is higher than others. Um, the type of source I get it from is different than others, right? But um, my experience when drinking caffeine... I, I think I had like, um, different types of tea, green tea, black tea, or whatever it was, even tried some pre-workout stuff, which is like mega doses of caffeine. Again, not always comparable. Um, but caffeine wrecks your sleep too. All right. And this is something we've seen in the literature as well. But in, in general, we have to remember that caffeine has a half-life of about four to six hours, which means, right, you drink your cup of coffee, which has what, 100, 115 milligrams of caffeine, you drink that four to six hours later, half of the amount of that caffeine that you drank is still in your system, okay? Now, if you think about somebody who drinks caffeine at 3 or 4 p.m. or 2 p.m. pick-me-up, right? You know, at 6, 7, 8 o'clock, half of that caffeine is still left in that person's system. And then however long it takes to fizzle out. And again, these are, these are generalizations and this will change from person to person for sure. Um, but that is something that is so detrimental to people's sleep, but it's ironic because the people who find themselves drinking caffeine in the afternoon are the same people who are sleeping terribly, who rely on caffeine to have a, have a pick me up effect in the morning only to crash midday to have that caffeine to help them finish the rest of the day, which then fucks up their sleep again. And then you have this complete negative feedback loop that people can fall into when, in reality, people do not need more caffeine in the afternoon, right? Like you need more sleep and eliminating or cutting off caffeine after 12 p.m. For, for pretty much everybody, right, is likely going to be a good idea. So I really can't emphasize this enough. I think a lot of people drink way too much caffeine as it is, whether it's from energy drinks or from uh, coffees or uh, even pre-workouts like Caffeine is uh, is so abundant sometimes in our diet, in our liquids, and I, I just think that that's uh, that's just a counterintuitive way to approach your uh, your energy levels, like addressing you trying to have more energy later in the day. Uh, and I don't know why I'm thinking of this right now, but I've been seeing the uh, I have YouTube TV, and you can tell who who their direct sponsors are. But Five Hour Energy is definitely one of them because I see one of their commercials every damn thing. <laughs> every uh commercial segment 
Um, but their slogan, your stomach will thank you. And as they advertise this caffeine shot at, you know, 3 PM or whatever it is, just fucking kills me, you know? Cause, uh, it's, it's that shit that is just killing people and wrecking people's sleep. And, uh, I, I just think that that's a root cause for a lot of people, just people having too much caffeine and that blocks your ability to fall asleep or to get good, restful, impactful sleep. So, you know, caffeine is something that will definitely negatively impact your ability to fall asleep and stay asleep. And I definitely found that for me personally, when I did have a handful of experiments where I did have some, uh, like half a dose of pre-workout or something, or even like black tea, green tea in the evening and, and hanging out with friends or doing something at a coffee shop, meeting up with people. Like there were select times where I remember that it was just more difficult for me to fall asleep again, probably because I can't handle that much caffeine as it is, but nevertheless, it did still have an impact on me. Cool. Third one here is alcohol. We're, we're really hitting the two big big ones right now. Ironically, the, the, the two things that are uh, part of people's lives the most, especially as we get older, right? But uh, in the literature, we see pretty clearly that alcohol blocks REM sleep. And that's a big fucking deal. Like, listen to me here. Like, I, I feel very strongly about this, but you do not need a glass of wine or a beer you know, at night before you fall asleep um, to help you fall asleep. And not only do you not need it, but it's bad for you. And it's likely a bad idea in the long run. Like, like maybe it'll help with your sleep latency. And uh, in some contexts, it might make you feel a little bit more relaxed and help you wind down. But at the end of the day, it's a net negative. Like, there are other ways to get that relaxation effect without consuming alcohol because that shit can block your REM sleep, okay? So the idea of drinking alcohol every night is BS. And chances are, you know, you're using alcohol likely as a form of escapism and that's fine. You know, I, I like drinking sometimes too, but you have to understand that there's a trade-off to you drinking before bed. And that trade-off is you blocking your REM sleep at night. But it's alcohol and caffeine here that, that really grind my gears because you don't need caffeine in the afternoon to make it through the day. Like you need to get good quality sleep so you're not exhausted come 3 p.m. Like that's what you actually need. Same with like needing a glass of wine. Like you don't need a glass of wine before you go to sleep. But you should try and relax another way and, and do something for yourself that you know can complement you getting into that re, uh, restful deep sleep at night. Like not actually take away from it, Okay. So I don't know. I, I digress here. Uh, I think people know my feelings on alcohol. Uh, I have multiple podcasts on, on alcohol and, and talking about it. Even my experience coming off of it, not drinking it for five or six months at a time. Um, you can go back and listen to my thoughts on that there. But in terms of alcohol impacting your sleep, it's a big deal. It happens. It happened to me. I saw it in real time, you know, and, and again, like, I do think, again, there's a difference between you going and having three cocktails one night and then trying to go to sleep versus you having like a half a glass of wine. Like it's, it's a different conversation, right? But um, I find that just honestly, any, any amount of alcohol like over the long term is just, it's just, it's not something that is going to have a net positive effect on you in the long run. And in, in addition to messing with your sleep, it's extra calories, it's messing with your inhibitions, it's making you less likely to want to get up and move. It's, you know, making your food selection around what you eat likely impaired or different. 
there's a lot of indirect ways that alcohol can impact your health and well-being, but it can directly impact your sleep, which can also have a cascade of, of um, you know, things happen because of that. And I think that's really important for people to remember and understand and appreciate because it's a, it's a hard truth that a lot of people don't want to hear or don't want to acknowledge because they think that, you know, you having a, a some alcohol before bed is helping you go to sleep. Like, sure, maybe you fall asleep a little bit quicker, but there's a lot of things that you need to consider and, and, and take into account that, you know, aren't you going to bed drunk and then waking up hungover? So cool. Next thing I want to talk about is marijuana. I know taboo, right? Like, oh, health people can't talk about marijuana, but fuck man, I'm here for it. And I got to start off by saying that <laughs> hearing that first sentence, I'm like, oh my God, I sound probably like such a stoner. I can count on three fingers the amount of times that I have smoked marijuana. Um, <laughs> it's I, I don't do it. I don't like smoking. To be honest, I don't love marijuana. I don't like the way it, it makes me feel. Um, and this is, uh, this is a very broad topic, right? There's a lot of nuance and things that can go into to marijuana in general. Like the, the strains and the dose and how much you take and how you consume it. And is it an edible or do you smoke it? Or is what, what is the THC or are you getting CBD and are you doing topical? Like, dude, the marijuana industry is blown up. And I'm talking about this now because I live in Nevada and I, I don't know, I think this is like one of the first states to make it elite or uh, make it legal. And we've had it legal for, I don't even know how long, if you're listening to a state or a, a place where this is not legal, right? Like this uh, is a different conversation, right? But this is so normalized in our culture and our society where I live that it's just not that big of a deal to me. And, and it's not hard to get your hands on it. If you want it, there's literally dispensaries every mile if you want to look for them, but uh, where you can buy pot legally, but it's uh it's something that I did experiment with a little bit um, with more so in the form of like edible stuff like gummies uh, actually is mostly gummies. I think it was all gummies. Yeah. Um, there's actually a, a company too that I tried. I was at a, a coaching conference and one of the uh, gifts that we got in like our welcome bag was a company that sponsored it. It was called Cured or something. And there's like um, like small amounts of CBD or whatever it was in it. Um, but I did try a, a couple of times, handful of times marijuana. And I think this is such a very unique and individualized experience. Like what I'm about to say is likely going to be true for me, but for one person who agrees with me, there's probably 10 people who have a different experience with marijuana and, 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 uh, how they interpret, you know, impacting their sleep and helping them with manage stress and all this stuff. Right. So for me, marijuana was something that was a very short-lived experiment. Um, I didn't do it like consecutive nights necessarily, but it was something that I I tried. And from a gummy standpoint, I did notice that it it helps me it helps me improve my HRV. Is something that stood out to me. Like my HRV is a little bit higher on average compared to me. Again, maybe there's other confounding variables, but I found that it helped with that. Um, from a sleep standpoint, it helped a little bit too, but I also had other side effects. Like I just didn't feel very good. I felt more drowsy. Um, and again, it, this could depend on what you take for sure. But the the reason that I choose not to consume marijuana, I just, I don't do it. Maybe, 
maybe for fun at a bachelor party once a year kind of thing. I don't know. Not even that, but it's just, uh, it's not something that I do very often. And it is something that I just, it wasn't worthwhile for me to continue to experiment or really go deep into it, but I did want to try it. I found that it had a small benefit, but it wasn't enough for me to justify doing it more, if that makes sense. So, um, I'll end that there. I feel like I'm just talking around, you know, what I want to say right now, which is the fact that like, I I don't like it and I don't want to do it. And it's, uh, it's just not something that was a, was a benefit in my opinion for me. So I've decided not to continue trying to do that. But marijuana was definitely something that, uh, was on the back of my mind. Cause again, I've, I've heard about it and I've seen, you know, I've known people close to me, not close to me, just talk about it and use that. And, and it just, it's not something that, I appreciate or want to do. So I digress from there. Um, the next one is sex (laughs) again, kind of another taboo topic. Right. Um, and I'm, I'm going to try and breeze over this one, but sex is good for literally everything. Okay. Period. Like end of story. Like, do you want to get better sleep? The answer is yes. Like do your thing with your partner, like get groovy before bed, but when you do that, you can probably watch your sleep improve because of that. So sex is good for a lot of things. It's also good for sleep. So you're good there. Next one was meditation. Now, meditation is uh, something I really tried to dive into. It was a very, uh, man, it was just a very uh, important part of my life at one point. Like I really tried to do it daily. Um, I downloaded the Calm app. There was guided meditation courses. There was like 30-day courses. There was a year stretch where I really really hit it hard. And to be honest, I think, I think it helped me a ton. I I really do. It was, uh, it was something that I found was a good part of my morning routine or evening routine. Uh, it helped me calm down. I think research has been really clear that that and like big, deep breathing or or something that can really help you tap into this parasympathetic state. So research kind of shows that, you know, meditation can support a lot of these things, but for me, it's uh, it's something that I don't do as often now, and sometimes I find myself grappling with the idea of like, fuck, I should be doing it more, but it's also hard for me to do. It's just, it's not something I enjoy as much anymore, um, even though I know it has some benefit. So when I do do it, it might be right before bed. My my wife and I might put on a calm session or something, and we'll do it right before bed, and, and I can maybe fall asleep a little bit quicker. Um, but meditation is something that I've lost a little bit of touch with. I've, I want to get maybe back into it, but I don't know. I just found that there's other ways for me personally that I could also kind of like calm down and, and use to help me relax at the end of the day a little bit better. Things like maybe reading books, more importantly, going on walks with my dog and my wife. Like I live for that, I swear. Um, but just like leaving the phone, going out, getting some activity in, getting away from screens. Those are all things that I found has been really important even like in, and I'll talk about blue light here and stuff in a second, but even like watching a show or something for 30 minutes, you know, an hour before bed or whatever it might be before we get ready for bed. There's just other things besides meditation that I found have been, you know, a cool thing and a cool outlet for me to help wind me down and help me get a little bit more chilled out and calm. But meditation I found was a really, um, a really cool tool that I leaned on for a while and that I'll, I'll still dabble with here and there, but it can really help you calm down before you go to sleep. And I'd recommend it to anybody if you're trying to, you know, manage your stress a little bit better. The next thing was melatonin and other sleep supplements kind of with melatonin in it. So 
first off, what is melatonin? Melatonin is just a, it's a hormone. Like some people call it the sleep hormone, which I agree with. But when melatonin is present, your body thinks that it's nighttime and it, it thinks it's time to go to sleep. So when you take exogenous melatonin, which means you're taking something that's outside of your body making it, like you're supplementing with a hormone when you're supplementing with melatonin. And I want people to realize that it's actually kind of a big deal. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that taking melatonin is dangerous or you should be super worried about it and um, you, know, you should be scared to take it, but it is a hormone and you're still taking that in the form of a supplement, which is something that your body should be making naturally on its own. Like You shouldn't need to take melatonin every night for you to be able to go to sleep. And if you think you need to take melatonin, it's probably a Band-Aid and not the actual root cause of why you're not, you know, being able to make enough on your own. So I've tried melatonin before. We have some, some stuff in the pantry. Um, and in my experience, it did exactly what it was supposed to do. It, it helped me fall asleep quicker and, um, specifically the extended release melatonin tablets that you can get. Um, I, I've tried a handful of those and it helped me sleep more throughout the night and it helped me get better deep sleep. So I do think that there can be some utility for melatonin and using it on occasion can be a tool for you. And again, it's kind of a, you know, a tool in the toolkit kind of thing, but it's probably not something that you want to take every day. And if you feel like you need to use it every day, there's probably something else at play that needs to be addressed that you're missing out on. So, um, yeah, just for reference here too, like the dose that I was taking, I think was like three or 400 micrograms per night, which is less than a gram, right? 30, 40% of a gram. So, um, there's a big difference there, right? If you're taking three to five grams, you know, of melatonin, just know that that's a fuck ton of melatonin. And I'm not here to tell you that you can and, or can't take it, but, um, you know, if that's you, if you're taking a ton of melatonin and you look at your dose and it's like, damn, I'm taking five grams per night it might be a good idea to experiment with some lower doses so you don't become reliant on that um, before taking it before bed, right? And, and relying on it to, to fall asleep and stay asleep, okay? Cool, a few more here. Thanks for writing this out with me. Um, late workouts. Uh, this is not rocket science here, but workouts in general elevate your cortisol temporarily, which can put you in a stressful state, which isn't ideal right before you go to bed right? Um, but that's the point of working out, you know, but working out late in the evenings has been shown in the literature to have some negative effects on your sleep. Now, I don't think this is that big of a deal personally, but just remember to try and have some time in between your workout before you go to bed. And uh, it definitely nicks the pre-workout if you're taking pre-workout in the afternoon or in the evening. But Working out before bed, I've done that a few times. That's just how the schedule laid and, and, and what I was able to do. And working out at 8 or 9 p.m., it just it made it hard for me to wind down in time to go to sleep at 10 or 11 o'clock whenever I was trying to get into bed that night. Now, again, I think people exercising two, three times a week, and if they could only get it in at night because they got the kids and the job and the transport and everything else, it's like, that is still going to be a net positive on your health over the long term. So I wouldn't shy away from, from working out if you could only do it in the evenings. Um, but just remember, if you can time it better, if you can plan it or you can do it on the weekends and, and you could do it at an earlier time or in the morning, like 
might have a better impact on you over the long term than you chronically just working out at night and working out right before you go to sleep. But again, I'll take what you can get when it comes to working out. So um, do your thing with that, but just keep that in mind as well. Cool. Overtraining was the next one kind of related to, to kind of working out here. But to be honest, I feel like I could talk about this forever, but this was a big one for me at one point, And I just, I can't understate it. Like if you're working out as hard as you can without taking breaks periodically, that 100% can lead to overtraining. And when I talk about this in my story episode, like I, I dive into a little bit about the overtraining piece on this. Um, but overtraining I think is more common than we think it is and more common than people care to appreciate. And it's, uh, it's very impactful. And when it came to overtraining for me personally, this is when I would see my HRV go all over the place, more specifically in, in the wrong directions. You know, I mentioned earlier, like 80, 80 or 70 or higher is kind of the range that I like to see my HRV. Like if I'm on the tail end of a workout program and I'm training really hard and I'm really stressed out and there's some work stuff going on and we're traveling or whatever it is, like my HRV would get as low as 20 or 30, which is crazy low for me. And in, in those moments, if I have multiple days back to back of that, that would be an indication for me where I would say like, you know what, I need to take a break. Or maybe that came at a perfect timing where I took the week off of training that week. But I think that, uh, I think when you really see this on paper, it makes a lot of sense to you. Um, and when you are in this overreached or overtrained state, all things will trend in the wrong direction. Um, everything that I listed, body temperature, your sleep cycles, your latency, um, uh, even your heart rate, specifically your HRV, like it's just a lot of things can go all all wacky on you. And, and it's a, sometimes a good reinforcement to be able to take a step back and appreciate what rest and recovery uh, does for you. And sometimes, you know, even myself, right, I'm kind of that type A personality, but like the idea of me voluntarily not working out sometimes like is really hard, even if I have a coach telling me to do that. But for some reason, seeing it on the app, seeing it tracked in my sleep, seeing a trend over a course of a week, it made that decision easier for me. And uh, it, it just made more sense to me in the moment. So that was a big one that I... Uh, I wanted to to bring up. And then the last one that I want to talk about today is, is blue light. So in general, um, I think we all know, like when we think about blue light, we think about electronics. Um, but in general, like light from the sun is the most potent form of blue light. Now the sun has a bunch of other rays and light spectrums and whatever it is, but you know, it's not just only concentrated blue light, but your electronics have a very concentrated source of blue light that that blue light is relevant because that's what suppresses your release of melatonin at night. And uh, you just don't want that happening right before you're trying to wind down and trying to go to bed. You know, uh, historically speaking, evolutionarily speaking, like, you know, our, our cavemen and our ancestors and everybody without phones and computers and all this stuff, like the sun came up, you got outside, you got exposed to this blue light, cortisol comes up, great, like all these things are happening, sun goes down, blue light is no longer there, your body starts to release melatonin, your body knows it's night, and then you go to sleep, and that's kind of like your your circadian rhythm, so to speak, and now that is just so not our reality, right? Like we're constantly exposed to all of this blue light surrounding us, and whether it's your phone, your computer, your laptops, your 
TVs, um, any type of electronic really is going to be producing that blue light, which can make it very, very uh, difficult to like wind down at night and, and just make you more stimulated before you go to bed. And you do not want to be stimulated before you go to bed. Now, the other thing that I want to mention is a lot of the things that we are doing on these electronics that are producing blue light are also dopamine seeking behaviors, right? Like, like online shopping or scrolling through Instagram or doing a deep dive into TikTok or uh, responding to work emails or doing work stuff or doing school or assignments. Like a lot of times what you're doing on those electronics also mentally stimulating. So it's kind of this double whammy. So best practice, if I could say to anybody and have them have them implement this today, it would be amazing. But 30 minutes at least before you go to bed, we're putting all screens away at least. I think a lot of people do that. And I think best practice personally would be an hour or more if possible, right? Like meditate, read, listen to a podcast, go on a walk with your dog, talk to your spouse, um, make a list for tomorrow. Like just do something different than looking at your phone fucking point blank before you go to bed. Now that's not going to be something that you can do every single night in, in, uh, worst case scenario, like if you have a really nice set of blue light blocking glasses, I think that could be a really good way to kind of combat some of the damage and stuff that we can get from this blue light at night. But just keep that in mind. Blue light is, uh, man, it's so detrimental. And for me personally, I found that when I cut off screen time an hour and it's still hard for me too, right? Cause sometimes you just want to watch Ted Lasso at night or love is blind or whatever it is. And you watch an episode and then you go to bed immediately I found that watching TV not in my bedroom was a really big deal for me. Also not looking point blank at my phone and putting that away. I also put my phone on night mode or uh, do not disturb at like 8 to 7 a.m., 8, 8 p.m. to 7 a.m. So like not getting notified, just like taking some of the distractions away was a really, really important thing for me too that made a difference. So just keeping that in mind, there's small ways that you can minimize you know, some of the exposure to some of this stuff. And if I had to just throw this out there too, like there's that night mode where the screen goes dark or dark mode, right? Just because the screen is darker or the whites turn to blacks on your computer or your phone does not mean that the blue light is not getting through. So that's not doing shit for you. Get some blue light blocking glasses or don't look at them. Don't look at your electronics before you go to bed. Um, and I think that that will have a profound effect on a lot of people if they really prioritize that. So Oh my gosh, this episode went way longer. I knew it would, but uh, yeah, I sit here and I'm looking at the time and I'm just amazed. But um, as I wrap this up, I just I just wanted to say a few things, but I think that tracking my sleep was really a cool and really insightful experience for me. No doubt about it. And, and it would be something that I'd recommend to anybody if they were interested in. But it taught me so much about all of these factors and these metrics and the things that influence my sleep, and, and I learned a ton. But as time went on, it got to a point where tracking my sleep wasn't helping me anymore. Like, like honestly, I don't, I, I'm at this point now where I don't want to be judged first thing in the morning every single day, right? Like, in getting in a bad sleep score, like, I think that can set the standard to some people's days. And I don't know, I just, I think it's gotten to the point where I just, 
I don't want to feel like I'm taking a test every single night. You know what I mean? And it, it got to a point where me like intentionally trying to sleep better was actually making my sleep worse because I was thinking about it so much. So just like everything else, I do think this stuff can be taken too far, but there's a reason why I don't wear the aura ring as much anymore. I wear it sparingly, but I've learned and experimented on my own with my lifestyle and my habits and you know, I've done all these things and I've gotten to the point where I feel like I don't need it anymore. And if you're listening to this and you're wearing some of these, you know, aura rings or wristwatches or um, wearables and all these things, like I'd really encourage you to have a conversation with yourself and just to be honest and decide if that thing is still serving you. Because chances are there's going to be a point in your life where you need to disassociate from that, eliminate it and continue living without it because those things should not be a destination, right? It should be a means to a destination. And using it for a period of time, I think is a very powerful thing to do. But in my personal experience, in my opinion, I just think that these these things, they can kind of get out of hand and they can just take your attention in so many different directions that can just really be counterproductive at the end of the day. So my, my suggestion is just learn what you want to learn from it, practice with it, look at it, visualize it, be able to adjust and, and be honest with yourself and then get to a point where you can live without it and transition away from it. And I think your life will be better because that is likely where your best life lives is not you being overly obsessed with all these sleep analytics and tracking and tracking your workouts and tracking your steps. And I even track calories in, in this discussion too, right? Like I think there's, so, there's such powerful ways to learn and this idea of like what gets measured gets managed is so fucking true. But you have to live your life at some point. And I just, I, I just, I really encourage people to, to make sure that you are taking all of these things with a grain of salt and not letting it ruin or run your life. You know what I mean? So I was going to do some key takeaways here, but I feel like I talked about everything I wanted to talk about. And if you still listen to me talk and ramble on about this, I really appreciate you. This is a crazy long episode, but I, uh, again, I feel really passionate about it. I want to share my experience with it. And, uh, if you have any questions about it, just ask. I'm always here for you. And uh, if you need anything or recommendations, I'm, I'm here for it. But uh, until next time, remember to eat with a purpose, train with attention, and think with confidence as you work towards your own nutrition and fitness goals. I appreciate you listening to the episode and uh, I'll see you on the next one. Talk soon. Peace. Thank you again for listening to this episode. If you found value and enjoyed it, it would mean the world to me if you posted a screenshot to your social media. If you do, make sure you tag me so I can say thanks. Or if you're on iTunes, scrolling down and leaving a five-star review would be much appreciated. And if you ever want to get in touch with me, you can always find me on Instagram at LukeSmithRD. Thanks again for tuning in, and I hope you have an amazing rest of your day. I'll see you on the next episode.